Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to compare and discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Excited to welcome to the forum for his first appearance with us on this podcast, Dan Iveson of PIMCO. Dan serves as the firm's group chief investment officer. Dan is also the lead portfolio manager for PIMCO's income strategies, credit hedge fund, and mortgage opportunistic strategies, while also serves as a member of PIMCO's executive committee and a member of the investment committee. So Dan, Jason, it's great to be with you both here on the podcast today. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Looking forward to the discussion and to hearing your views. Great. I'm very, very excited to be here. It's great to be here. Thank you, Dan, for joining us today. Absolutely. And we do have plenty to cover, a lot going on in the markets. And uh, Dan, there has been and continues to be much debate across our industry as to whether the U.S. economy is in store for a soft landing or a recession, with the markets becoming marginally more optimistic on the former in the past month, this in light of the latest jobs report, as well as inflation data. So, Dan, from your vantage point, how do you see the economic landscape here in the U.S. taking shape over, let's say, the next six months? Sure. Well, uh, highly uncertain uh, to, 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 you know, be, be very upfront here. Uh, tremendous amount of uncertainty. Uh, we're dealing with uh, an inflation challenge. Um, we do believe that the Fed is quite serious, you know, at least over the near term in, in getting inflation under control. And that means, you know, a decent amount of policy uncertainty as well. Uh, of course, we also have war going on in Europe. Uh, and a lot of friction, you know, elsewhere, you know, within the globe, uh, particularly with the U.S.-China relationship. So this is a time of extreme economic uncertainty. Um, PIMCO's of the view that um, the Fed still has, you know, more uh, tightening ahead. In fact, when we look at the yield curve today, although we've seen some weakness uh, more recently, you know, particularly in the front end of the yield curve, we do think the Fed's going to need to tighten policy further um, and get the funds rate up towards 4% or, or, or perhaps even a, a bit higher than that. And, you know, when you look throughout uh, economic history um, at periods where inflation has been this elevated and you've had central banks um, active in tightening policy, uh, you have seen a pretty significant slowing uh, within the economy. So a recession uh, by no means is guaranteed. Uh, but certainly probabilities of recession um, are elevated. Um, and, and we do think, you know, over the course of the next six months, we're going to see significant slowing in the U.S. economy. Uh, it's about a 50-50 proposition if we're able to uh, avoid uh, a recession. Of course, there are different types of recessions, uh, some more mild than others. Um, but we do think that we are going to see um, some weakening uh, within the economy. I guess the good news being that we also expect to see inflation uh, trend lower. Um, it will remain frustratingly high for an extended period of time, but we do think that uh, peak core inflation is probably behind us, uh, but it's still, you know, a bit early to, you know, raise it in, in all clear sign. Uh, we do think it's going to be, a you know, a, a pretty bumpy journey, um, and we think, you know, given the more extreme economic uncertainty, uh, you're likely going to see pretty elevated uh, financial sector uh, volatility as well. Thank you for that, Dan. Jason, what about your thoughts? I know we spoke about this a bit on our August 23rd CIO strategy snapshot, though. How is CIO thinking about the economic landscape going forward and the prospects for a recession? Well, the term uncertain is probably the 
most accurate characterization, you know, where we are right now. Uh, you know, we've seen data over the past month that, you know, you could correct that as mixed, but you compare it to I think, the pessimism that pervaded the markets you know, early in the summer, a little bit better than expected, and sort of suggesting that there's a decent amount of resilience in the U.S. economy, at least in the near term, enough such that we could probably get through the rest of this year without maybe a recession starting, barring some sort of unexpected shock. But as we look into next year, you know, the, the risk of a recession, even if it's quite mild, is, is still relatively elevated. Ultimately, much of this hinges on how inflation evolves from here for two reasons. You know, one, you know, the, the more sticky it is, the more the Fed has to raise rates, the more aggressive they have to be to cool the economy, to get rid of it or bring down inflation. As it happens, the risk of recession goes up to probably what has to be the base case. Also, though, if inflation does come down, it makes the Fed's life easier, but the impact for the economy is almost immediate because it's essentially a tax cut for the consumers. And we already saw that in July when you know, inflation fell, at least, or at least was flat on a month-to-month basis, gas prices are down 20% from their peak. So that's putting more money in consumers' pocket. We saw that last week in retail sales numbers that it actually showed a bit of you know, an uptick as yes, they benefit from lower inflation. So for inflation were to, to start to moderate more quickly, that would be a boon immediately to consumers and also make life easier for the Fed. The problem is predicting inflation is, is incredibly difficult. We've learned this over the past year where for 18 months, almost consistently, the market's underestimated. We've had a couple of good data points recently, but I think we, we can't be sort of too complacent. I think that things are definitely going to trend lower. It looks that way, but I think that uh, the uncertainty of how the inflation path will move forward from here is you know, the biggest reason why I think you know, the outlook for the economy remains highly uncertain. Now, the Fed, of course, has been quite an influential factor throughout the course of 2022. The Jackson Hole Symposium uh, here in the month of August could be an indicator as to how the Fed will proceed from here. What are your expectations, Dan, with respect to monetary policy? Do you feel the market perhaps has become too optimistic that the Fed will pivot by year end? Yeah, we, we, we think that uh, the market has become a, a bit optimistic, and I, and I think some of that optimism has um, been shaken out of the front end of the yield curve, given some of the pressure we've seen uh, the last uh, couple of weeks. But we think that the Fed is, is likely to move 50 basis points um, at least um, at the next meeting. Uh, there's the likelihood for another 50 basis point increase before year end, uh, and we do believe that um, the central bank is going to be looking for meaningful signs of inflation trending lower or the economy weakening, you know, at a pace faster than we've seen thus far. Um, And then in in regards to pivots, uh, we also think when you look at that front end of the yield curve, that seems to imply uh, the potential for a loosening of policy, you know, later on in 2023, that that's probably a bit premature as well. Um, You know, we agree uh, with Jason that um, inflation remains frustratingly high uh, there's still a lot of uh, uncertainty regarding the overall inflation dynamic. Of course, we have war in Europe and uncertainty around uh, energy prices, uh, even as a function of what the Russians decide to do going into year end. So we do think that uh, investors should get um, used to higher front-end rates and perhaps front-end rates staying stubbornly high, uh, even in the face of considerable economic weakening. So you know, if we're forced to take a, a, a position on the front of the yield curve um, today, uh, given current valuations, you know, we'd be, you know, on the defensive side, you know, given um, 
given the ongoing uncertainty regarding the Federal Reserve policy from here. Dan, if I can ask just a follow-up question, you know, kind of maybe more of the market's perceptions of what the Fed is going to do. And if you just based on like, you know, what the market is pricing for for, red, red, for Fed rate hikes, just in the past couple of weeks, it's been pricing more, a little bit more for this year, but particularly the changes, you know, how many cuts it was pricing for next year. It's gone from something like three cuts starting as soon as March now, maybe a cut a little bit by later next year. So if you look at what the market's pricing, it's pretty close or certainly much closer to what the Fed dot plot was laid out in June. This is a contrast to where we were in July and after the July FOMC, you know, and Jay Powell's press conference, kind of the, the immediate reaction seemed to be that was very dovish. Yet when I kind of look at the overall story for the past couple of months, it seems like the Fed has been pretty kind of consistent in trying to say, Inflation is too high. We have to keep raising rates to bring inflation down. And therefore, I don't know if, if, do you think the communication has changed in some way or if the market's just perceived communication a certain way back in July and now they're kind of realizing, oh, actually, the Fed is going to do maybe what it's intending to do? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think at the last uh, press conference, you, you know, Chair Powell, you know, about um, being close to a neutral rate. Um, talking about, you know, increased data dependency and perhaps the markets, um, you know, you know, following, you know, a, a few, you know, constructive CPI prints got a little bit uh, ahead of themselves. So I, I think, you know, the Fed will continue to use words and speeches to help fine tune uh, their overall message. But of course, what's going to matter most, you know, will be the data. Um, and I think when you look out, you know, towards, you know, the latter portion of 2023, you know, we acknowledge that there's going to be more economic uncertainty, you know, at that point in time. Uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy operates with considerable lags. Um, we are seeing, you know, the gradual um, lessening effect of the prior massive fiscal stimulus that we saw uh, in early, you know, 21. Uh, and of course, the impact of um, higher interest rates will be gradually felt across um, the economy as well. So I think what the market may be saying at this point in time is that the economy is likely to slow. Inflation is likely to come down, and it's very, very hard to calibrate policy, especially given the significant uh, geopolitical and, 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 and other uncertainty out there. So probabilities, you know, go up that, um, you know, you know, out towards the latter portion of 2023 that economic growth is sufficiently weak that the central bank perhaps entertains uh, reversing their policy stance. But, you know, we think from an investment perspective, uh, we should get comfortable with four-ish percent type front-end interest rates and perhaps, you know, rates uh, remaining at those elevated levels for an extended period of time, given, you know, the fact that we're still, you know, up in high single digits um, in, in terms of U.S. inflation with even greater challenges, you know, being faced by the Bank of England and other, you know, pretty powerful inflationary trends across other, you know, key areas of the globe as well. Moving over to asset allocation for a few moments with context in mind that most risk assets are well off their lows in June and July. This supported by expectations of a Fed pivot, good inflation as well as jobs data, and even technical support from oversold conditions. Dan, from your vantage point, after this move, where do you see opportunities and risk across markets, maybe beginning with fixed income, if you have an outlook for interest rates you can share with us, and then specifically uh, what you like right now within credit? Sure. We'll start out with interest rates. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're fairly neutral to a little bit underweight interest rate risk across most portfolios. Um, you know, you, you know, looking at sort of a 3% type level on the 10-year um, no, you know, that, that looks like reasonable longer-term value in a world where central banks ultimately get inflation back towards target, but we're a long way away from, from, from that level um, right now at the moment. And given my prior comments on uh, the potential for the central bank um, to have to do more 
a tightening to get inflation under control. We think it makes sense to, to have more of a neutral to, to slight underweight from a tactical perspective. Now, with that said, when you step back and look at valuations again with a longer term focus and you see that you could obtain a three or even, you know, three and a quarter percent type yield in a treasury bond, and then you look at um, the spread you could earn on even a higher quality investment grade type um, investment. And you're looking at, you know, five, five and a half, even even six percent type type yields uh, in the higher quality segments of the market. And again, that looks um, increasingly attractive from a longer term perspective. So the bottom line is that um, valuations um, look more interesting today. Uh, just a year, year and a half or so ago, we were you know looking at one percent type levels for rates here in uh, this country with negative yields, you know, in many areas of the developed world. Um, with that said, and as we talked about earlier, um, there's certainly elevated risks of recession. And any time uh, you have elevated risks of recession, you want to be careful uh, as an investor in some of the most economically sensitive areas um, of the marketplace. So we don't think, at least within the fixed income opportunity set, it makes sense to dive aggressively into the lower rated segments of the market, particularly within corporate credit, um, where there's been a little bit of um, excessive um, risk-taking over the last few years. Um, Valuations aren't terrible, um, but they are a lot tighter than where we were just a couple of months ago. So the bottom line is that um, we're fairly, you know, neutral to a a little bit underweight. Most um, higher quality government bond markets were also a bit more cautious um, out in the lower rated or the most economically sensitive areas of the market. But we have looked to take advantage of the volatility we've seen uh, more recently in more resilient um, areas. Um, so things like agency mortgage-backed securities, the benefit from a direct government guarantee or a strong guarantee from a government agency uh, look increasingly attractive from a historical perspective. We like high-quality secured risks that can be sourced in the asset-backed market, the mortgage markets, or even the commercial mortgage-backed securities uh, markets. Even senior AAA-rated CLOs have widened quite significantly, and we think offer value. And then finally, some of the higher-quality areas um, of the investment-grade corporate credit markets, with the banks being a great example. Other you know, U.S. banks that are carrying very, very high levels of capital uh, relative to their history and are taking much less risk than they have in the past, given a lot of these post-GFC uh, regulations that have been in place, we think offer some attractive value um, as well. So some, some, some value in more resilient areas of the market, still a little bit underweight um, duration or interest rate risk, and then still being a bit more patient or selective um, in the lower quality or most economically sensitive segments of the overall opportunity set. Jason, how are you thinking about fixed income in this environment, including your preferences within credit? And then even if you have an outlook for interest rates, I would be curious to hear that as well. I think there's similarities to what Dan just said for kind of fixed income overall. If you just step back from from fixed income specifically, but just think about the market dynamics in general, you know, a simple framework that I've kind of been using for much of this year is that you have an environment where inflation is you know, far too high relative to the Fed's target, a labor market that's very tight. The only way the Fed can really address this is to tighten financial conditions, try and intentionally slow the economy uh, below trend growth to bring down inflation. 
in that environment, when you're trying to tighten financial conditions, that's not great for, for risk assets. And until we get kind of clear and compelling evidence that inflation's improving, the Fed is going to continue, at least on the rhetoric front, to move in that direction, which just means in general, sort of a challenging environment. You know, I think for, for any investing and for risk taking in particular, um, and the, the one thing that's probably most, you know, kind of reliable, predictable is that the volatility will continue to be with us for, you know, the foreseeable future. So if that's sort of like the context and the backdrop of how we think about taking risk, if you apply it to fixed income and on the credit side in particular, you know, a message that we've had for multiple months now is, you know, more kind of up in quality. You know, you can get, you know, a pretty interesting yields, you know, without taking a lot of credit risk, you know, whether it's even in the front end of the investment grade curve where the yields can be over 4%. You know, if you're getting that kind of income versus a couple of years ago where you'd have to go into more speculative parts of the market to get that that kind of returns. And given the uncertainty in the macro environment, especially how much spreads have compressed just in the past month, it feels like, you know, the risk reward of kind of going out further on that risk curve is you know, just not as compelling right now. We'd rather sort of wait to do that uh, and kind of get a little more you know, up in quality, safer assets. On the rate front and duration, you know, you know the view that uh, you know, we as the team has had or our fixing them strategist Leslie Falcone has had is, you know, for like the 10-year, you know, sort of between two and three quarters, you know, 2.75% and three and a quarter. Uh, and as it gets higher, you know, closer to the up end of the range, you know, some of the duration starts to look a more interesting. But for the moment, it's not, you know, you know, kind of not making a big duration call or interest rate call kind of one way or another because things certainly can go higher. Uh, and, you know, we don't want to, you know, kind of be on the wrong side of the trade you know, the best we can in, in the near term. So that's generally how we're thinking about it. And I'd say just, you know, on the equity front, it kind of the same sort of logic applies that, you know, we've had a very strong rally in equities. Something that we would have kind of attributed to is more as a, a bear market rally. Given the, the macro backdrop that remains challenging, you know, we think equities are more kind of range bound for the foreseeable future and where equities got to 4,200 on the S&P, kind of the top end of that range. It doesn't mean things are going to go back to like, you know, retouch the lows, but sort of chop around, at least for the time being in that environment, um, given them, you know, what the Fed is trying to accomplish, given the uncertainty on the macro environment, given the uncertainty on earnings. So in general, sort of an idea, an overall view is to not scale back risk taking in portfolios dramatically, but where you can go up in quality, maybe get a little bit more defensive. Speaking of equities, Dan, curious to hear your thoughts, thinking about market activity over the past few weeks. Is this just a bear market rally with equities likely to retest their lows? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, just a few thoughts. You know, one after the significant rally that we've seen over the last couple of months, um, where we're a, a bit more cautious regarding equity valuations. So, you know, we think valuations are fair to a, to a bit uh, expensive. And across our multi-asset strategies, we have shifted from, you know, a slight to moderate overweight, you know, back towards neutral or even a slight, you know, underweight regarding equity uh, beta more broadly. Now, in accounts that can trade equity versus credit explicitly, uh, some of our alternative strategies, as an example, we do think that credit risk screens attractive versus equities. But again, they're going to be quite correlated. Um, if you see equities, you know, drop significantly going into year end, that's likely going to be accompanied by wider credit spreads. And, you know, most investors aren't putting that trade on at least explicitly. So you know, for the time being, we're not um, don't want to sound overly alarmist regarding equity valuations. But given heightened economic uh, uncertainty, geopolitical uncertainty that we talked about, which is, you know, impacting uh, certainly Europe uh, to, a, to a greater degree, but is, a, is, is certainly a global phenomenon. You know, we're a bit more cautious, you know, regarding uh, equity valuations. Uh, and, you know, towards Jason's point earlier, 
Um, when you think about, you know, yields that you could obtain in the front end of, of the higher quality credit markets versus, you know, you know, imp- you know, implied earnings yields or dividends yields in the equity market, uh, it is a fairly unique opportunity to be able to generate, you know, a, a pretty attractive, um, consistent income stream without taking a lot of, you know, additional volatility. So we think, you know, that, you know, you know given more extreme uncertainty and, and pretty good performance over the last several weeks, it makes sense to hunker down a little bit in a more stable area of the market. So with the near term covered, if we move back to macro for a few moments, Dan, shifting to the three to five year secular outlook, what type of economic and market environment do you see taking shape? Well, great. A topic we're spending a lot of time on it here at PIMCO. You know, in fact, we get the entire team together with all of our outside advisors, you know, once a year to talk about the outlook uh, for markets and, and economies over a five-year uh, type period. And you know, we do think it's going to be uh, a lot more volatile um, than we've grown uh, accustomed to. Of course, we're coming out of a global pandemic. So certainly since early 2020, we've had a lot of volatility. But if you go back the prior decade, um, you know, this was a, a world of significant volatility suppression by global central banks and other policymakers. Uh, and we think, you know, on a go-forward basis, you're going to have more volatility. Um, although our base case is that inflation comes down the next couple of years, over the longer run, we think you're going to have elevated volatility around inflation. You're going to have more uh, real economic volatility. You're going to have less synchronized business cycles as we shift back towards, you know, more regional economic models and as deglobalization trends, um, or at least the pace of uh, the, uh, of globalization slows. So this is going to be an environment where um, volatility is elevated, uh, both in real economic terms and financial market terms. And returns, uh, although they look you know a bit more encouraging uh, now than where we were a year or so ago, are likely going to be lower um, relative to that elevated volatility. So from a sharp ratio perspective, I think um, we'll look um, a little bit um, less attractive today than where we were coming out of the global financial crisis. Now, that's the bad news, um, that beta returns, at least adjusted for volatility, will likely be lower than we've grown accustomed to. The good news from an active asset management perspective or in thinking about um, more active tactical um, asset allocation decisions is that volatility, less synchronized cycles, uh, more um, – influenced by regulators and, 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 and politics more broadly should lead to more um, periods of dislocation. So again, if you have a more active approach, um, it should yield um, attractive incremental returns. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, we are concerned, you know, a little bit about uh, volatility and economic cycles. Again, another key theme we talked a lot about, um, to, 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 to border on state of the obvious, is this uh, increasing geopolitical tension. You're seeing it in an extreme fashion across Europe today. You're also seeing it within countries, um, a much more polarized society here in this country. Same dynamic exists across Europe. Uh, and even China's uh, multi-year, very, very strong growth model is under strain and stress as well. So I-, I wish we had a more positive outlook. But the bottom line is we think that um, more heightened volatility is here to stay, uh, more unpredictability, you know, given uh, the need to focus on these geopolitical trends as opposed to more textbook uh, economic analysis. Uh, but again, uh, it should be more target rich, you know, for an active asset manager that, of course, gets their research uh, and their analysis right. Hey, Dan, I was you know, reading your um, the, the secure outlook that you published in June, and it touched on a lot of the points you, you know, just mentioned right now. You know, one statement in there was, uh, you know, Part of the reason to see like a more uncertain volatile landscape is there factors like kind of the green digital social transformation as key drivers of disruption on top of some other ones you kind of just mentioned. 
as you sort of identify these different factors, are there some that you think have the potential to be more disruptive, you know, relative to markets? Uh, that, like, if I were to really think this is really going to be the kind of key potential disruptor or driver, is there one of those different factors that you identify that thinks is, is probably the most relevant for that view in terms of market and economic volatility? Sure. Well, well you know, obviously, geopolitical uh, considerations, you know, today, given, given, you know, a war in Europe and the risks of that conflict expanding um, are going to dominate over the near term. But I think this brown and green energy transition is, is very, very important. Um, it, it's important to, to PIMCO, given how important it is to our end clients. Uh, and as we know, um, and as you, you're well aware, you know, um, you know, across your UBS client relationships, you know, this type of transition, you know, ESG, you know, more broadly means different things to different individuals. Um, uh, it, it could be a function of age. It could be a function of location. It could be simply a, a function of preference. So, you know, this is going to be very, very important in, in terms of how capital is allocated. Um, there are shifting preferences um, that are going to drive these capital decisions over time. And, of course, um, these uh, areas are highly political, um, and regulators are going to be very, very involved, uh, heavily involved in Europe. But this regulation is also, you know, coming, you know, here uh, to the United States as well. And anytime you have, you know, this regulatory friction in markets, it leads to both risks and opportunity. So uh, we do think that this um, climate um, change dynamic is going to be very, very important. Uh, particularly important from a fixed income investor, you know, where the best we can earn is, you know, a coupon rate um, and you know the principal that 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 that, that we you know provide to borrowers. So it's very very important to understand the risks of more permanent uh, disruption uh, and the risks to regulations impacting um, a company's cost of capital and in some cases, you know, overall long term viability. So this is a theme that's been somewhat you know put on the back burner at least in terms of investors focus given the very unfortunate situation that's going on over in Europe uh, even some of the uncertainty um, related to China but we do think it's going to be a very very important trend in an area where PIMCO is spending a lot of uh, time money and energy um, in being able to analyze this risk effectively to make our own more narrow investment decisions but also to be able to serve the needs of a uh, pretty diverse, you know, global client base on a go-forward basis as well. So I have another question, and, and kind of give you a little bit of context of how I'm thinking about it. Is, is I just published a note yesterday uh, looking at different factors in the economy that sort of maybe lay out a more optimistic, you know, bull case scenario if we're thinking on like a five-year plus horizon, and identifying how we're actually seeing, you know, public investment is picking up in the U.S. Where you know we had the, the Chips and Science Act passed, we had the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, so definitely some more fiscal spending there evidence of corporates increasing their capex and there's certainly a need for that uh you know kind of entrepreneurial activity has actually kind of picked up relative to the pre-pandemic period so at a sort of structural supply side component of the economy there seems to be some positive dynamics going on now this is offset by you know potentially the fed trying to suppress aggregate demand overall to kind of cool the economy to bring inflation down so there's another you know comment in the secular outlook that you you guys wrote that you know, you could have higher spending in areas like defense, healthcare, energy, all these things to build more resilient supply chains. You know, that's positive aggregate demand story could lead to more inflation. Uh, and a lot of supply developments that I just alluded to could actually be more about building resiliency versus kind of, you know, productivity and enhancing sort of efficiencies. So assuming at least in the near term for the next year or so, aggregate demand is suppressed, it feels like when I was sort of thinking about it, this is ultimately in some way a supply side story. And is, are there positives going on in terms of companies investing? Could that be a positive that leads to you know, 
more efficiency, better productivity, or is it ultimately sort of just creating sort of you know resiliency and therefore it's not doesn't bring inflation down as much, um, you know, it's not as sort of productivity enhancing. So you know, how would you maybe think about in terms of like maybe the supply side, the demand side, sort of over the different horizons, and maybe like the pros and cons of like some of the supply develop, supply side issues being kind of productivity enhancing versus maybe less so? Yeah, well, this is a great point. And, and, and we do think there's certainly going to be some areas where, where economic agents are looking for resiliency at the expense of productivity, at least in a narrow sense. And in, 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 in some ways, the climate-related initiatives are uh, have that flavor to them. Um, you know, for the common good of the planet and for long-term sustainability reasons, um, individuals, corporations, regulators are willing to accept a little bit less productivity or perhaps a little bit less um, economic activity, all else equal today, in exchange for more over the longer term. Um, but also, in addition to what we talk about in, in that report, um, there also are a lot of areas um, where there very well could be a, a more sustained period of increased productivity. Uh, going back to the COVID situation, and we talked earlier about the fact that we're, 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 we're coming out of a, a global pandemic. This has been the ultimate case study in being able to do more with less. And when we literally all were sent home for extended periods of time, had to learn to, to work remotely, efficiently, um, in, in, in a very you know, significant fashion. And as we all know, we continue to use um, and further develop these technologies today. So uh, there's been a lot of, of learning that's gone on over the course of the last few years that will likely be sustained in the form of greater efficiencies over the longer term. I know I even fell into the trap um, that I find myself falling into from time to time where I talked about you know, these deglobalization themes. Well, it's kind of ironic that we talk about deglobalization while we're on, you know, Zoom or WebEx or whatever type of, you know, VC software our companies use and where we have access to, you know, thousands of people around the globe in reasonably efficient fashion. So despite the fact that there are certainly trends leading to, you know, new, more, more inward thinking and, and, and more regionalization, um, it's, it, it's kind of hard to put the globalization genie back in the bottle at this point. And in fact, you know, we think in many respects this COVID period is, is, is going to lead to more sustained uh, productivity on a go-forward basis. Now, again, from the standpoint of a fixed-income investor, you know, increased productivity may, may mean greater economic capacity, but that also could lead to higher real um, yields as well. So what's great for the economy and may be great for sustained growth or great for equity valuations may not be so great for the very, very high quality or the highest quality segments of the fixed income universe, which is one of the reasons why we think, you know, this period of very, very low real rates is likely behind us. But again, I think that the repricing of fixed income we've seen over the course of the last few quarters has been consistent, you know, with that overall dynamic. Uh, and it doesn't change what I mentioned earlier, that we're finally beginning to see some value return in that space, um, even if we don't get back to the very, very low uh, or negative real yields that we saw, you know, for the years, you know, leading up to this um, COVID-related shock of early 2020. You know, to, we began by saying there's, you know, the six-month economic outlook is uncertain, but even if you go to, you know, five years, 
it's uncertain where there's definitely some risks, but I think there's also, you know, some, some positive developments that often don't get appreciated. I think, you know, we've kind of touched on both of those. So, so thanks for covering that. I know we just have a few moments remaining. Dan, Jason, thank you for all of the ground that you've covered for our listeners, our clients, a very productive, informative conversation. Before we wrap up and what we can do, Jason, is provide our guest, Dan Iveson, with the final word today. So, Jason, I'll ask you first, accounting for your secular outlook, Jason, what are some implications for investor portfolios? How should investors be thinking about an allocation? Well, just a few high-level points, right? I think that what we describe for a secular perspective is that the next five plus years are look very different than it was, you know, the pre, you know, the five years pre-pandemic. So the, the portfolio strategies that were appropriate then are unlikely to be appropriate now. Uh, a lot of the investment that's taking place is going to not necessarily lift equity markets or returns higher because valuations are certainly on, on, the, on the richer side. But I think the winners and losers in that environment will be a little bit different. So some of the things that we actually like on more on a cyclical basis, still like value stocks, still like commodities, those would also be beneficiaries from a secular perspective that uh, you know that we kind of laid out a little bit, which is also makes them even more you know sort of attractive at least on a more tactical horizon because it means there's different scenarios in which they're likely to, to perform you know well. Uh, so I think that's kind of how I try to you know, kind of marry some of the cyclical and secular views. But you know, I think the big point is that you know I think you know we have to think a little bit differently about you know portfolio construction and look for other areas for performance than what was sort of the playbook in the pre-pandemic period. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Dan. And same question to you to close out. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's been great spending some time with you today. I, I think that, you know, the next uh, several years are going to be volatile. Uh, and, and with volatility comes opportunity uh, for the patient investors. So I think one, uh, having a healthy respect for uncertainty and risks, uh, given the more challenging environment, but also, you know, being a bit more flexible in terms of uh, the overall investment mandate. Um, we talked earlier about um, the likelihood for more volatility um, across business cycles, less synchronized business cycles, um, a bit more uncertainty around inflation and less synchronized inflationary processes globally, you know, with bouts of geopolitical related volatility. Um, all that um, uh, is a recipe for the potential for increased returns to the extent that you expand to more of a global opportunity set and are willing to operate across you know, more areas of the broad financial market opportunity set. So, you know, again, I, I, I think you want to be careful of, about concentrating your investments, um, you know, too narrowly. Uh, have, of course, a healthy respect for volatility. Um, and everyone knows their own individual comfort level, you know, with how much volatility they can take. But by being creative, being flexible, you know, leveraging a global opportunity set, we think you could end up with you know, pretty good risk-adjusted returns, despite the fact that more traditional sharp ratios may be a bit lower than we've grown accustomed to. Um, so so, so I, we think that's the key. And of course, uh, it'll be interesting times uh, as, as, as uh, fellow investors. Um, you know, but again, we think there'll be some uh, interesting opportunities um, if, 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 you, if you can be a bit more flexible. Well, uh, Dan Iveson, Jason Trejo, thank you for joining our listeners, our clients on another episode of How Should I Be Positioned. Appreciate you sharing with us your macro views, guidance with respect to asset allocation. A lot here we can follow up on. It would be great, Dan, when you find yourself in New York down the pike a bit. Perhaps we can have a follow-up conversation, the three of us from our studios in Midtown. But uh, thank you again for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Really appreciate it as well. Thank you, Dan. Both Dan's.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.